0: You know, in the last couple of decades, we have witnessed an amazing shift in how technology has changed, really transformed our communication, haven't we? But in the rush for more immediate information, there's been a movement away from the power of the written word. Yes, indeed, it is the age of information, but that's just it, information. More information does not necessarily mean more rich information. Our communication has been reduced to uh, word bursts and and sound bites, truncated sentences. And rather than using words in our communications now, it's often we use abbreviations. LOL and BTW and TTYL. and In fact, there are thousands now of these abbreviations. If you go, uh, you can look on the web for texting abbreviations, you will literally find thousands of them. And uh, yes, I have fallen into that trap. Uh, Those of you that get my text, I tend to use very short ones as well. But that's a, you know, the issue. What's happening these days? We do exchange information, but not substance. We change messages, but not meaning. We exchange data, but not depth. Words, but not worth. That, that writing that deepens the understanding, the communication that stirs the imagination and challenges the mind and the heart to wonder. This kind of writing is becoming a lost art in our generation. We no longer paint with words. But... Thankfully, such is not the case with God's word. In fact, especially in this chapter, we're going to see it is full of imagery, memorable illustrations, intricately woven descriptions, colorful word pictures that that give rich depth and meaning to the message that's being given. In fact, in the prophets, we find many skillful artists, those who paint these pictures with words that not only give us a clear understanding of the mind, but also of the heart. Their verbal images help us to learn not just the content of the message, but they also move the soul. And that the Bible is rich in imagery shouldn't be any surprise to us, right? For who is the author of communication and language? In fact, who is the the one who created art? God himself, right? What better artist is there? What better communicator is there? And God's artistic ability is on full display here in Hosea 7 as he gives us four different word pictures that are intended to deepen our understanding of the nature of sin and what sin looks like to God. For rather than just telling us how wrong sin is or how bad it is or how hurtful it is, God chooses here to show us. He's already done this through Hosea's marriage, a graphic illustration of the betrayal God feels regarding sin. But God's view of sin didn't stop there. Otherwise, the book of Hosea uh, would have ended at chapter 3. After describing uh, uh, the sin of betrayal and how that affected Hosea as a picture of how it affects God, God could have stopped at the end of chapter 3, but he goes on. And he continues. And he continues to give more communication, more information. In Hosea 7, again, God paints for us four more pictures, four images that communicate what sin looks like and what it feels like to him. Not just so that we better understand it, but really to help motivate us to flee from it. And so let's begin. We're going to begin where we left off in the middle of chapter 6 last week. We're going to look there. Actually, uh, chapters 5 through 7 are are part of one message. Beginning in chapter 5, Hosea was describing, God was speaking through him about uh, what what the Israelites were doing, their sin of idolatry and the judgment that was being declared because of that. And then Hosea interjected in the midst of that, the beginning of chapter 6, he, he calls the people to respond, listen, return to the Lord. He says, let us know Him, let us press on to know the Lord. Things can be different, we can be forgiven, diligently express a loyal and affectionate love for Him. It's all God really wants. right?" He said in Hosea 6, 6, I enjoy loyal love rather than sacrifice and the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But, as we talked about last week, the people wanted their sin more than God. Back in Hosea 4.1, the indictment against the people was that they had no faithfulness or love or knowledge of God. And again, that's what we see here in chapter 6. In fact, uh, let's pick it up in verse 7 of chapter 6. Hosea says, But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There they have dealt treacherously against me. Gilead is a city of wrongdoers, tracked with bloody footprints. And as raiders waited for a man, so a band of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they have committed crime. In the house of Israel I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's idolatry is there. Israel has defiled itself. Also, O Judah, there is a harvest appointed for you. When I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is uncovered and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief enters in, bandits raid outside, and they do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their deeds are all around them, they are before my face. With their wickedness they make the king glad, and the princes with their lies. We'll stop there for a moment. Hosea here is laying the foundation for what is to follow in the rest of chapter 7. And here we see that their lack of love for God, their lack of knowledge of God, has produced no faithfulness to God. Hosea says in verse 7, they have transgressed the covenant. That is, they have broken their promise, broken their promise they made back back in Exodus 24 to obey me, to follow my instruction, to know me, to seek me, to pursue me, to love me. Verses 7 through 9, we are given several examples which bear that out. And in those verses, Hosea mentions three different locations. Adam or Adam in verse 7. Now, when you hear Adam, what do you think of? Who do you think of? Adam, right? Adam, right? Who else is there? But in this case, actually, Adam, though, it, it can refer to Adam. It can refer to mankind. In this case, it's actually referring to a location, a location within Israel mentioned in Joshua 3.16. It's located on the uh, east bank of the Jordan River. I have a map here to show you just to give you an idea. Uh, It's somewhere along the eastern bank of the Jordan River in the region of Gilead, which is this eastern region here, which, by the way, Hosea also mentions in verse 8. And in verse 9, he mentions Shechem, which is between uh, Bethel and Samaria. Samaria is like right in the middle here of Ephraim. Those are three other places in Israel that he's mentioning. Three other locations where the people have demonstrated their unfaithfulness. In Adam, it says that they had broken the covenant. That um, It says there they have transgressed. And we don't know what specific act he is referring to there. The People probably did, who Hosea was speaking to. But in some way, they disobeyed the covenant there, the promise made to God. Gilead, it says, that it was a place of violence, of bloody footprints, gives this picture, rather than, than mud and dirt on the ground as blood, bloody footprints in the land there. Shechem, mentioned in verse 9, the way to Shechem, he says, is littered with robbers, who it seems were priests, also priests of all people. So in these verses, Hosea again identifies other locations within Israel where their disobedience to God is made clear and evident. We saw back in Hosea 4.15, he mentions Gilgal and Bethel. And then in Hosea 5.1, he talks about Mizpah, Tabor. And now here we see Adam, Gilead, and Shechem. Some of these places are well-known. Some are not as well-known. His point is that sin is pervasive all over Israel, from the north to the south and from the east to the west. In these verses, we see that. He summarizes that point in verses 10 and 11 where he says, In the house of Israel I have seen a horrible, that is an appalling thing. house of Israel there I think is referencing all 12 tribes in the land of Israel because right after that he calls out Ephraim specifically. Again, Ephraim is the the primary, the prominent tribe of the 10 northern tribes of Israel. They were the most prosperous, they were the most populous. Then he says Israel uh, in that verse as well, right after Ephraim in verse 10. When I think there, he's referring to the remaining nine tribes. And then in verse ten, he also or 11, he says Judah. Judah was the location in the south where Benjamin and Judah were, were at. And so here he's mentioning all tribes, every tribe of Israel. All of God's people were defiled by sin and idolatry. And so, he says, all would then be subject to judgment. That's what we see in that phrase, there is a harvest appointed for you. That was not a harvest of good things, but it was a harvest of judgment. And it applied to the entire nation. Things were so bad that as we see in chapter 6, verse 11 and in 7-1, which when I was reading it, I read them together because this is one of those unfortunate places in the Bible where the chapter uh, the division was, was stuck in the wrong place. Actually, six eleven and 7-1 go together. Because the point that he's making here is that when God would seek to bring restoration, when he would seek to heal, a word in Hosea that is a reference to forgiveness, when God would desire to do those things, it says, in that moment the sin of Ephraim is uncovered. Literally that it is exposed, it is revealed. So we see here in these verses the theme of Israel's sin. It permeates these verses. Did you see how many different words Hosea used to describe or reference sin? If you go back to verse 7 in chapter 6, transgressed, dealt treacherously, wrongdoers, bloody footprints, murder, crime, harlotry, defiled, iniquity, evil deeds, wickedness. And in those verses, he describes how the sin wasn't just confined to the people of Israel. He notes how the priests were involved in robbery and committing violence. He notes in 7.3 how the kings, the political leaders, were also in favor of this evil that was taking place. And so as we approach Hosea 7, verse 4, the theme is set. Indeed, he's made it clear there is no faithfulness. There is no loyal love. There is no pursuit or relationship with God in the land. And God could have stopped there. He could have ended at 7-3. He's made it pretty clear up to this point, and especially in these verses, Israel has a problem. Israel is deep in sin, and therefore I'm coming to judge. God's made that message very clear. But He chooses to move on in the rest of chapter 7 in order to draw for us, in order to paint for us these pictures which better illustrate, which clearly illustrate, which have more of a, a, an emotional impact and give clear understanding to just what their sin is and what it looks like to God and how He feels about it. These four images, the first one we see, the first word pictures given in verses 4 through 7. Look there with me at verse 4. He says there they are all adulterers, like an oven heated by the baker who ceases to stir up the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with scoffers, for their hearts are like an oven as they approach their plotting. Their anger smolders all night. In the morning it burns like flaming fire. All of them are hot like an oven, and they consume their rulers. All their kings have fallen. None of them calls on me. What's the word picture he shows here? Describes. Did you catch it? Hopefully it's pretty clear, right? What is it? It's an oven, right? He describes them like an oven. And how is that oven described? Heated. inflamed, Hot. Sort of like this picture here. That's the image that he's portraying. In fact, it is so hot. He mentions here how the baker left it overnight. He didn't stoke the fire and it is still burning in the morning. That Picture of uh, leaving, uh, leaving it unkept uh, as the dough was rising. So several hours, he didn't give attention to the fire, but it was still burning. Now here he calls the people adulterers, which would seem, uh, given what's been talked about in Hosea, and it would make sense that he's talking about the fact they're hot with lustful passion, with the desire for immorality. Again, that wouldn't be consistent with Hosea's overall theme, but if you continue on in verses 4-7, to seven, there's no other reference to to physical immorality. He's talking there after that about kings and princes and rulers in this oven and, and they're plotting and planning and stuff like that. Nothing to do with lustful passion. And that's because the focus here is on political intrigue. And I think he uses that word adulterer or they're committing adultery in the sense of what's at the heart of adultery is betrayal, right? Is treachery, unfaithfulness. And he's saying that how they are treating the king and the authorities in their life, that they are doing that with... There's a treachery against authority. And that treachery is hot like an oven. This political treachery, it may not be apparent. So I want us to go back to 2 Kings 15 to see what's going on here. We've got to understand the historical circumstances because this is an image the people would be getting right away. All the words, how he's describing it is something that people would readily understand. So go back to 2 Kings 15... Second Kings 15. Hosea's ministry, and I included our chart here. I expanded it a little bit just so there can be some names here. Um, I, I put out the, the order of the kings that appear in yellow there. That's Jeroboam II. He was the king that had the 40-year reign where there was peace and stability and prosperity in the land of Israel. And then there were several kings which followed him. These are all kings in which the, Hosea's ministry, they were in, in power. Looking at 2 Kings 15, verse 8, we begin there. After Jeroboam's death, we see this. In the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, that's the, Jeroboam the second, became king over Israel in Samaria for six months. He did evil in the sight of the Lord as his fathers had done. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabot. That's the first Jeroboam from about 150 years earlier, which he made Israel sin. Verse 10, then Shalom, the son of Jebesh, conspired against him. That is Zechariah, and struck him before the people and killed him and reigned in his place. Look down at verse 13. Shalom, son of Jabesh, became king in the 39th year of Uzziah, king of Judah, and he reigned one month in Samaria. Then Menahem, son of Gadi, went up from Tirzah, came to Samaria, and struck Shalom, son of Jabesh, in Samaria and killed him and became king in his place. Stop there a minute. So you have Shalom here, the guy who assassinated Zechariah, Jeroboam's son. He assassinates him after Zechariah is just six months on the throne. Shalom is one month on the throne, and then he's taken out by Menahem. Skip down to verse 23. Menahem had a ten-year reign, and then this is what happened. In the fiftieth year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekahiah, son of Menahem, became king over Israel and Samaria, and reigned two years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. Then Pekah, son of Remaliah, his officer, conspired against him. That is, he conspired against Pekahiah and struck him in Samaria, in the castle of the king's house with Argov and Aria. And with him were 50 men of the Gileadites. And he killed him and became king in his place. Here we go again. After just two years on the throne, Menahem's son, is taken out. And there's a side note here. If you notice there in verse 25, some think that this assassination is actually what Hosea was referencing back in Hosea 6-8 when he said that the Gileadites, that they're in Gilead there were bloody footprints. Some think it's because of this conspiracy that where Pekah had 50 men from Gilead had come as well to take out the king. In any case, skip down to verse 30. Let's see, what do you think is going to happen to Pekah? Hmm, hmm, it's a tough one. Verse 30, Hosea comes on the scene, the son of Elah. He made a conspiracy against Pekah. Really? No kidding. The son of Remaliah And struck him and put him to death and became king in his place. Now, I don't know about you, but... Okay, here's four guys. In the last 20 years, after Jeroboam, we have six kings. Four of them are assassinated. And I'm thinking... Who's going to want to be on the throne then? These guys are killing the next king. Why do they want to get on the throne? Because they know it's going to be a short term. It's not a long-term career opportunity, but they continued to do so. And that's the point that Hosea was getting at. If you go back to Hosea chapter 7, verses 4 to 7 are describing these assassinations or the atmosphere, what was going on in the midst of the monarchy. He mentions in verse 5, Here he describes probably either one of the specific assassinations or perhaps more than one of them occurred this way. He says in verse 5, on the day of our king, this refers to a special day of the king, perhaps it is his birthday, perhaps his coronation day, or perhaps it is the, the annual celebration of his coronation. And as with any festivity, particularly with these evil kings, they would contain alcohol. In fact, lots of alcohol. Verse 5 goes on to describe how the princes, which is a word that can mean princes, but also can refer to leaders, to officials of the king, to noblemen, uh, to those who are in power, to the aristocracy, uh, to commanders in the military. In any case, these princes, those leaders that were around the king, they all got so drunk they were to the point of getting sick. And it is in that circumstance... That's described here when the king can barely see straight and it says that he stretches out his hand to the scoffers. Now scoffer is a term that means the one who boasts, a braggart, a scorner, a rebel. What he's talking about here is this. You have the picture of this. They're all drunk. They're all they don't. Their their faculties are all diminished. And in that moment, these people are coming and plotting his assassination have entered into the room. And the king extends his hand in friendship to them, not realizing who they are. They're plotting. It says there, the uh, word in verse 6, that plotting is another word, is planning an ambush. That's the picture. And that's what you would do in those days. You would look for opportunities when the king was vulnerable, when the leaders weren't paying attention. And what better opportunity than at a party where everybody's blasted? That's exactly what's being described here. It is in that circumstance that they plot The actual assassination is mentioned in verse 7 where it says they consume their rulers that were consume or eat. That's describing the rulers being taken out and murdered. It says all their kings have fallen in verse 7. No kidding. Again, four of the last six have died this way in just the last 20 years in Hosea's ministry. It's unbelievable. I mean, again, think about it. I mentioned this to you before, but imagine if in our country, in the last 20 years, four of our presidents had been assassinated. Very insecure. Everybody would know about it. There would be no mystery. The point here of the word picture is to explain what's going on here. And that is the insatiable lust for power that these assassins had. It was a thirst which could not be quenched. And so they plotted and they planned and they schemed to try to get their way into power. Even to the point of murdering. And Hosea uses these murderous plots of his day. Again, ones that everybody would know about. Everybody would see. He uses those in order to describe one characteristic, one aspect of sin and that is this sin or lust, whether it's for power, as in this case, or sex or fame or money. It's like an oven. It's like a hot oven. In fact, look again how lust is described. In verse 4, he says, It's like an oven whose fire, once heated up, needed to, did not need to be stoked again, for it would continue to heat up, even though the baker had neglected it overnight. In verse 6, it describes again these coals that are, are smoldering all night until the oven door is open. And retired fireman Lou Stone, what would take place when a bunch of oxygen is exposed to a hot, smoldering fl- uh, fire? It's a quiz. Okay, reignition. Something like this, perhaps. I just want to make sure you're retired now that you hadn't forgotten anything. But. <laughs> right? But that's the picture. That's what he's describing in verse 6, is that heat, that lust, that desire. It's not getting, it's not getting uh, snuffed out. It's actually waiting, waiting for an opportunity. And that opportunity is the oxygen which inflames the lust. And here it is, the lust for power to gain authority, to gain the throne. And that lust will not take its eye off of its object. It is determined. It is resolute. It will do anything to get it. You ever been there? The heat in your heart, consuming passion, the plotting, the, the scheming, the thinking about, the smoldering desire, the fixation on having that object, what you want. Whether it is immorality, it is the desire for power or gossip or material possessions or, or drugs or alcohol or the desire for revenge or, or anger, rage, the illicit image. These indeed can be powerful and before we look at Hosea 7 and say, well, that's he's talking about their sin. That's something that they were doing. I mean, we're, this is unbelieving Israel. These are a bunch of unbelievers that he's talking about. But before we dismiss it so readily, let us be reminded of what James says in James 1 verse 14. As he is speaking to fellow believers, he says each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed that word is to be lured, to be baited, to be hooked. When he's carried away and enticed by his own lusts. So don't miss the point here. This isn't just how God sees their sin. This is how God sees sin, period. For believers, sin, is it is it somehow different or, or sanctified over that of a non-believer? A believer is forgiven, yes. A saved person will not lose eternal life. A Christian has the Holy Spirit within. But that is what makes the believer's sin all the worse. That is what makes it all the more important that we heed this image, that we are reminded of the power and the intensity and the passion of our lust within our hearts. That's what makes it all the more important that we treat sin seriously so that we're quick to confess it, that we're quick to flee from it, and that we rely on the resources God has given us in order to battle it. God wants this picture of the oven burned, and I use that pun intentionally. He wants it burned within our hearts so that we'd understand that sin is like that oven, and if it's not doused, it will smolder and then heat up into an inferno. We see a second work picture here in verse 8. If you look there, he says this. Ephraim mixes with the nations. Ephraim has become a cake unturned. Strangers devour his strength, yet he does not know it. Gray hairs also are sprinkled on him, yet he does not know it. Though the pride of Israel testifies against him, yet they have not returned to the Lord their God, nor have they sought him for all this. Now here in this image we see Hosea has remained in the kitchen. He's moved from the oven to what is placed within the oven. As he describes here, Ephraim as a mixed dough that has then been improperly cooked. That word cake there in verse 8 is a, a word that's likely referring to a, flat, um, a round bread, Maybe like a pita or something like that. And bread requires various ingredients to make it, right? It requires uh, water and yeast and flour and oil and, and salt. And so Ephraim is described here as being mixed. But the connotation is that it's not a good thing. Because he says here that Ephraim is being mixed or has mixed with the nations. Has taken in their religion and their idolatry and their pagan practices. And they've mixed them with their own. Baal, the golden calves, the Assyrian and Egyptian gods that they had pulled into their own worship. God had warned them about this. Back in Deuteronomy, just before this next generation of Israelites were entering into the land, God warned them through Moses. He said to them, Deuteronomy 7, 1, When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away the many nations before you, you shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will quickly destroy you. But thus you shall do to them. This is what God says. When you enter the land and I bring all the the enemies that I defeat them before you and you enter and take the land. This is what you need to do. Because you know what's going to be strewn all over the land is their idols. Their asherim, their, their altars, all of these uh, uh, dedications to false gods. I want you, he says there in Deuteronomy 7, this you shall do, you shall tear down their altars, smash their pillars, and hew down their asherim and burn their graven images with fire. I want you to, to destroy every vestige, every hint of these false gods. And then he says in verse 6 of Deuteronomy 7, Why? Because you are a holy people to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So God says, as you enter the land, don't don't mingle. Don't mix with the pagan idolaters of the land because they will suck you in. I want you to be distinct. You are different. You are marked as mine, God is saying. We've been keeping up with our Bible reading? Where are we now? What book? Leviticus, right? Now, you're reading through Leviticus. What is it with all of these odd laws, these purity laws, these uh, cleansing laws, these sacrificial laws, these dietary laws? I mean, is God trying to show them a way to better health? Is he giving them these laws so that they could live longer lives? Do they have all of these specific commands in order to show that they couldn't keep them? Not at all. If you've been reading in Leviticus, what is a word, four-letter word in English that is repeated over and over and over? Holy. Holy. What does that word mean? It means set apart, distinct, completely different. They were to be set apart for God. Yesterday's reading was Leviticus 19 through 21. Leviticus 19:2 Says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And then he said in Leviticus 20, verse 26, Thus you are holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. That's the theme of Leviticus. Holy, the Lord is holy, and holy is unto the Lord. And that's why God said to them, When you go in the land, don't adopt their ways, don't absorb their practices, don't love what they love. But they didn't hear. Psalm 106, verse 35 says, They mingled with the nations and learned their practices and served their idols, which became a snare to them. Again, beloved, we are reminded of how this applies to us. Not to be like the world. What's a common word, by the way, that's used for believers in the New Testament? Probably the most common term used. Saints, right? Saints. Saints brothers but saints in particular what does that word mean is it the picture of the solemn person with the bright ring over their head is that what a saint is what's a saint holy one literally I guess the word literally is one set apart one set apart for god and to be used by god that's what defines who we are we are his and we cannot be mixed Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6, What harmony has Christ with Belial? Be ye separate. Or James 4.4, 4, he says, Friendship with the world is hostility towards God. Or 1 John 2.15, he says, Don't love the world or the things of the world. And anyone who does is like Ephraim, mixed with the nations. He goes on to say, Hosea does, in verse 8 of chapter 7, They are a cake unturned. Again, they are a piece of flatbread unturned. And and what happens if you were to take a piece of bread and put it on a hot surface and leave it there? It burns, right? I'm very experienced in this area. In fact, I made a little sandwich for me yesterday. And guess what color one of the sides of that sandwich was? It looked just like this. Um, that's the picture of a cake unturned. One side is burnt to a crisp. The other is left doughy, underdone, undercooked. Previous analogy, the baker left the oven unattended. Here he fails to turn the bread over in time. Which makes me wonder, you know, Hosea needs to hire another baker, I guess. But what would it be like to eat something like that? What would that be like? Burnt on one side, undercooked on the other. Something you're looking forward to having right after church here? After our business meeting, of course. Right? No, it's inedible, undesirable, useless. The oven depiction, the oven word picture in verses 4 to 7 describes how sin is determined. This picture of the unturned bread shows us how sin is disgusting. It's disgusting to God. Proverbs six sixteen says, There are six things the Lord hates, seven which are an abomination to him. That word abomination appears a lot in the Old Testament in regards to God's perspective and view and feeling about sin. That word abomination means to abhor, to loathe, to detest, to be sickened by. Sin makes God sick. It's nauseating to Him. It's like eating a piece of burnt and doughy bread. I mean, have you ever put anything in your mouth... That start eating it, and right when you begin to swallow your throat says no it ain 't going past this point, buddy <laughs> and there 's only one portal that that remains for the food to get out right right we call that uh, we call those things our gag food, and when I was growing up, my gag food was potato salad. I liked all the ingredients separate, but for some reason, when you put them together and stuck them in my mouth, something bad happened, and you know i don 't know how many Older ladies or ants or you know or, or people in my family would always come up. Well, you haven't tried my salad. <laughs> I'd warn them, but they're in for it. Just it, potato salad was my gag food. Sin is God's gag food. Makes him sick. Remember what he told the church at Laodicea, right? I wish that you were cold or hot. And By the way, he's not saying I wish you were hot for the Lord or cold for the Lord. In that region, there were cold springs and hot springs, both of which were desirable. So he's saying, I, I want you to be desirable to me. But he said, instead, you are lukewarm. And so what does he say in response? I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, the translations are very nice to us when they use that word spit. You know what that word actually means? Vomit. Vomit. This isn't a situation where God's, you know, going over to the side and doing a little spitting over there. It's a, right? It's a vomit. Excuse me, I'm sorry. I know it's near lunch, but that's the point. The question for us is, do you see your sin that way? Do you see it as nauseating to God? You know, I was vigilant to keep potato salad as far away from my mouth as possible. And so, too, we must be vigilant in keeping, away, keeping us far away from sin so that we do not sicken our Father. Amen? Looking at verses 9 and 10, Isaiah 7, God tells them that they are oblivious to the effect of their sin. Not only upon God, but also the consequences on themselves. He repeats this phrase twice in verse 9, yet they do not know it. Strangers devour them, yet they do not know. And I think there he's referring to the fact that they were paying tribute to the nations around them in order to be protected. And so the nations around them were siphoning off the riches of Israel. They were being devoured, gray hair sprinkled on them. He's talking there about Israel is approaching death. They're getting older. The consequences and judgment are coming, and they don't even realize it. Verse 10, he says that the reason for that was their pride. It was preventing them from seeing it. It was preventing them from turning from their sin to God. And so they remained as this unturned piece of bread and did not change. If you look at verse 11, we see a third word picture. Here he says, Ephraim has become like a silly dove without sense. They call to Egypt, they go to Assyria. When they go down, I spread my net over them. I will bring them down like the birds of the sky. I will chastise them in accordance with the proclamation to their assembly. So here we see Hosea has moved out of the kitchen into the outdoors. And he moves from the, uh, the oven analogy and the, the uh, bread picture to now this uh, description of a silly dove. Now when you think of a dove, what things come to your mind? Peace, right? Love, elegance, beauty. And those are all true of a dove. But here he mentions a dove the silly side. That word silly means gullible, easily seduced, simple. He adds without sense, uh, which literally is without heart, which means they have no discernment. They're unable to make sound choices. And so the picture here is this bird fluttering to and fro, back and forth without any direction. But how is Israel acting in this way? What is he talking about here? Well, if you look at the rest of verse 11, he says they call to Egypt and they go to Assyria. If we had time, we'd go back to 2 Kings 15. We skipped several verses there. Verses which talk about this exact very thing that they were doing. One king, would, in order to keep Assyria from invading the land, would pay tribute to Assyria, and pay them off. Rather than calling out to God, like Hezekiah did about 40 years later when Assyria was threatening Judah, these kings would say, well, we're going to trust in our money. We're just going to pay him off. And so it describes there during Menahem's reign that that he did that. And then after Menahem's son, Pekahiah, was assassinated by Pekah, we see that he changed alliances. And he looked for an opportunity. He wanted to attack Judah, their brothers to the south. And so he went to the king of Aram. He broke his alliance with Assyria, went to Aram and asked for help to attack Judah didn't work out. Judah was able to hold. And so Judah, in in response to that, they went to Assyria for help. Assyria subsequently wiped out Aram and then went after Israel. Well, the next king, Hosea, decides, you know what? That wasn't a great idea. I'm going to go back to paying off the Assyrians so they don't do any more damage. And so that happens for a while. He gets tired of paying them and so he makes an alliance, he talks about in Second Kings 17, he went down to Egypt, to the pharaoh there, and said, hey, I want to make an alliance with you, can you help us out with this Assyrian threat? Well, it turns out uh, Egypt wasn't that strong of an ally, and as a result, Assyria had enough. So they came in, completely wiped out the ten northern tribes of Israel. That was in 722 B.C., carried many of the Israelites away to captivity. Now, if you thought all that was confusing and hard to track that's the point god was making with the dove for see they they were putting their hope and dependence on on assyria and then aram and then assyria and then egypt looking for help and security and protection from every place except the only one that could truly offer it just like this bird flying around with no sense a silly dove in fact, uh, Hosea had mentioned this earlier, back in Hosea five thirteen, where he said, "When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, that is, that they were in trouble, then Ephraim went to Assyria, sent to King Jareb, but he is unable to heal you or cure you of your wound." Again, they fluttered to and fro. Now, what picture does this give of sin? Well, bluntly put, sin is dumb. Sin is dumb thinking that these, these folks thinking they could find help, that they could depend on others, putting their trust in men, pagan men at that. And that is how sin is. It's scatterbrained. It's insane, in fact. I mean, when you think of what people are willing to give up, or what people are willing to do, or what people are willing to suffer in order to have their sin, it's crazy. I had a friend in high school who would get drunk at parties and then drive himself home. He was warned. He was even put on restriction. He was uh, shown the horrific traffic school videos. And despite all of that, one night, just driving home, drunk again, crosses over the yellow line, head-on collision. My friend Tim is gone, 17 years old. So is the passenger who was with him in the car just insane it is insane and it's insane not just because of the consequences sometimes final consequences like for my friend it's also insane because sin can never take the place of god it can never provide that lasting help or meaning or hope or enjoyment security protection significance It can offer none of that. Only God can. Israel didn't see that. The kings didn't see that. In fact, back in verse 7, it says, none of them calls on me. What he was saying there was, even though these kings would come into power and they knew that they probably would be taken out, none of them ever said, God, would you please protect me? Not one king sought God for protection. None called on him. And you see, that is the supreme sin, really. Really? trying to go one's own way, living life without calling upon the Lord. And we of all people who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, we should never do that. Amen? We of all people should trust Him completely, not only for salvation, but in every situation, every circumstance, every trial, every moment, every difficulty, every concern, everything that happens in life. We shouldn't be like that bird fluttering to and fro, looking for help and security and all that. We should be going to the Lord. Let us not be like this silly dove. Fluttering to and fro, looking for things that will not help and ultimately will not satisfy. Verse 12 then describes the fluttering dove of Israel will be caught in God's net, the net of His judgment. He says there, I will spread my net over them. I will bring them down like birds of the sky. And the net is an appropriate image here because that's exactly what happened to them. The net of Assyria came down over Israel and they were taken away into captivity. This leads us to the last picture, verses 13 to 16. He says, Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction is theirs. They have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry to me from their heart and when they wail on their beds. For the sake of grain and new wine they assemble themselves. They turn away from me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They turn but not upward. They are like a deceitful bow. Their princes will fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This will be their derision in the land of Egypt. So at this point when we approach verse 13 where... Israel's sinful passions, her disloyalty, her lack of faith in God, all of these lead to the declaration at the beginning of verse 13 when God says woe. And if there's anything we've seen in the prophets to this point, it is that you did not want to hear that word from God because what came after that would not would be very painful. God reveals in these verses how he sees their sin. In these verses 13 to 16. Notice that that he doesn't see their sin as some abstract concept or some impersonal violation of a set of rules or some judicial obligation. Because he doesn't say just that they strayed. He doesn't say that just that they rebelled, that they devised evil. Rather, he says this, they have strayed from me. They have rebelled against me. They speak lies against me. They do not cry to me. They turn away from me. They devise evil against me. What's the message here? What's God saying? Sin is personal. It's intensely personal to God. God's grief over their sin is made all the more evident. If you look at verse 15, there he says that although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devised evil against me. The picture here is a, a father who is raising his son to manhood. at strengthening their arms is this idea. He's, he's training them to farm and to fight and to provide and to protect. And yet they're the prodigal son. Not only do they not return to the father, they actually devise evil against the father. Verse 13, he says, "I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They spurned his desire for restoration." Even their supposed repentance is feigned. He mentions in verse 14 that they wail from their beds, but they don't cry out to me. Beds there, he's not referring to those within the home where you sleep. What he's referring to there, and it's seen by the next line that's given, he's talking there about the furniture, the couches that were located at the place of all or the false god worship out in the fields, in the hills. That was the place where, remember, their worship... Uh, to Baal was they would go and they would have immoral relations with cult prostitutes on these beds. So see, they were crying out was not in repentance to God. They were crying out in these lurid and wicked uh, cult practices in order to call for uh, the gods to provide for them the crops and rain and all of that. God says, yes, you're feeling the consequences of your sin, but you're not turning to me. And that brings us to the last word picture cuz verse 16 it, there's this phrase that says they turn but not upward that phrase is a difficult one to understand and interpret but it's basically saying that they're they're shooting all around they're looking all around they're aiming at nothing except the one true thing they should be looking towards or who they should be looking towards God himself and the, so that brings up the last word picture where he describes the people like a deceitful or a faulty bow They are a bow that is either bent or one that is ready to break or one that the string is too loose. In any effect, when you pick up this bow to use it in battle, it's totally ineffective because where you aim the arrow, it never gets there. And so it's called a, a treacherous or deceitful bow because not only is it useless, it can't be trusted. In fact, it's a dangerous bow because if you pick it up and try to aim, you actually, because it's going to be off, you might actually hit a comrade. Fellow soldier. And that describes sin. Sin misses the target. That's a basic literal meaning for the uh, Hebrew and Greek words for sin that are translated as sin. It means missing the mark. But what makes the bow deceitful here is there's no intention to hit the mark. And that's what sin is. It is deceitful. It is treacherous. That's why we see those words often in the book of Hosea. And I skipped over it earlier, but I want you to go back to verse 2 for a minute. Verse 2, there's a phrase that he uses there. Notice where it says, The people do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. He's speaking here of the unbelieving Israelites. And when he says that, I remember their wickedness, he's not just saying in the idea of he's omniscient, that he knows about their sin, which is true. He sees and knows all of our thoughts, all of our deeds, all of our actions, all of our words. He isn't just saying that he knows all of it. And he's not just saying he remembers sin in regards to that he will respond and bring consequences. That also is true. But the additional idea that he's mentioning here to them, to these people who refuse to repent and turn to him, is this idea of re-experiencing the memory of their sin. He's not just speaking of a cognitive event here. He's not just speaking of an impending response on his part. God is also saying, I relive the essence of your sin. I remember not only its occurrence, but also its impact on me. Again, as he's speaking to these unrepentant Israelites. Again, this shows us something. Sin is intensely personal to God. That's why God gave us these four word pictures in Hosea 7, so that we would better see sin and understand it through God's eyes. Again, he could have stopped at verse 3 and just said, sin is bad, sin is wrong. You see the example of my people Israel, consequences are coming. But he says, no, I really want you to understand. Sin is powerful. It is dangerous. It is like a hot oven. It's determined. It's resolved. It is like an unturned cake. It makes me sick. It's like a silly dove that's depending not on the Lord, but on anything but the Lord. And then he says here, it's like a deceitful bow, one that can't be trusted or relied on. It is deceitful, it is treacherous. And these are descriptions that we are meant to remind ourselves of so that we'd be motivated to flee sin. But at the same time, as you're reminding yourself of the danger of sin, remind yourself of this too. That God is the master baker and that He can purify the dough and make it into a delicacy. That He can douse the oven of passion. Remind yourself that God is the master bird trainer. He can keep the bird from fluttering to and fro away from Him. And God also is the master craftsman. He can shape and fix and repair that bow so that it is useful and effective in his hands. Because, beloved, in Christ, we've been freed from sin. Amen? We've been freed from it. In Christ, we've been forgiven. We've been made new. In Christ, God says, I will remember your sins no more. In Christ, if we walk by his Spirit, we will not carry out the the desire of the flesh. In Christ, we have his own example to follow to fix our gaze upon Him. So keep alert, be attentive, deal with the sin in your life, confess it, turn from it, for it is dangerous and it is powerful, but always remind yourself, and remember, there is one who defeated sin, and that is the one that we go to, to be rid from it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word, and thank You for these pictures that You give us of sin. We know, God, that in Christ we've been forgiven, that you have transformed us, that we're born again, that you've removed the power of sin over us. But yet, Lord, the desires are still there, desires that we don't have to give in to, desires that by your Spirit and through your Word and trusting in you and, and genuine repentance and confession, we can be rid of those sins in our life. But, Lord, we can tend to forget that. We can tend to entertain those desires and Lord they turn into an inferno. God, I pray that you would just use these pictures, remind us of them, so that we would always treat sin carefully and be reminded that you are the one who can empower us and by your grace, Lord, we can be rid of that these sins in our lives. Thank You, Lord, for Your Son and in whom we can have forgiveness through His death on the cross. In His name we pray. Amen.